New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Most of us have either encountered or know of some extraordinary phenomena for which we have no explanation. Many so-called paranormal events are mistaken perceptions, coincidences, or outright hoaxes. However, there are many reported and verified instances of psychic phenomena. These are occurrences known as near-death experience, out-of-body experiences, remote viewing, precognition, psychokinesis, and telepathy, to name a few. Today we'll be exploring the nature of consciousness in the research that has been done on psychic phenomena with our guest, Dr. Diane Hennessy-Powell. Diane Hennessy-Powell is a neuroscientist and psychiatrist. She completed her training in medicine, neurology, and psychiatry at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. She's a former member of the Harvard Medical School's faculty and of a part-time think tank on consciousness at the Salk Institute in La Jolla, California. She's published articles in neuroscience and neuropsychiatry journals. She's the author of The ESP Enigma, The Scientific Case for Psychic Phenomena. Join us for the next hour as we explore the science-based look at psychic phenomena and the study of consciousness with our guest, Dr. Diane Hennessy-Powell. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Diane, welcome. Thank you. Well, let's just talk about brain science to begin with. Um, I've read some articles that have suggested that what we know about the brain is we're just in the infancy time, maybe like Copernicus time when he said, hey, the, the earth is going around the sun rather than the sun around the earth. So we're kind of in that formative stage, possibly. Can you say something about that? Well, this is actually a very exciting time for brain science. And one of the things that we've discovered is that it's not just about the brain. One of the most exciting things that I have discovered is that a lot of the techniques that have been promoted by naturopaths, for example, um, they've talked about leaky gut syndrome and, they've, and the fact that people can have their behavior altered by, or their thoughts or their thinking process altered by something in their gut. 
And so there are people who do colonic therapy. And what's happened recently is that they've discovered that the bacteria in our gut play a role in how we feel. They've done fecal transplants of stool between rats, and they've seen that it changes the behavior, that that the rat that gets the feces from another changes. And so what they've realized is that our guts are full of all of these little chemical factories making these different um, chemicals that affect our consciousness. I think I just read a fairly extensive article in The New Yorker, The New New Yorker, all about those fecal transplants. It's fascinating. It is. And one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that their diet alters their bacterial um, flora. So what we have is we have a lot of bacteria in our gut that people didn't even realize are there because they didn't have DNA sequencing. Now that they've done DNA sequencing of the bacteria in the gut, they've realized that we have much more of a variety than we thought. And that certain bacteria, that when they're present, that it has a certain effect on people in terms of their weight. It, you could, the same thing's true for obesity. It, fecal transplants can change obesity. So we can't think Think about ourselves the way that we used to anymore. I mean, there's so, well, one... how does that affect our brain? Well, what happens is is that the the bacteria in our gut create chemicals that then go into uh, you know they're in our system, and we don't know enough about the chemicals that are made by these bacteria to understand why it is that we see these changes in behavior. So, so that's part of the research that's that's being done. So that's part of the new brain science that we're finding out. And where where would you say consciousness resides? Is it primarily in the brain, or is it something else? Or does it, what does it have to do with the mind? That is the biggest question. I, nobody has been able to really. But there are people who fall on one side or the other of that. Really, people are pretty polarized. It's about that. So you have people who have uh, experienced or they study near-death experiences or reincarnation or uh, other um, phenomenon like that, and they're convinced that consciousness does not reside in the, in, in the brain, that the brain is not responsible for creating consciousness. And that's a very interesting hypothesis when you look at the fact that there was this study that was done in which this woman was being um, operated on for a, an aneurysm that was in a very vital part of her brain. And in order to do the operation, what they did was is they cooled her brain down to 60 degrees. They, they removed the blood from it, drained it so that it wouldn't bleed. And they had her hooked up. Her EEG, which is the brainwave um, recording, was flatline, which is the definition of death. This woman, after she was brought back from surgery, from the anesthesia of the surgery, she was able to account for a lot of things that happened while she was supposedly dead, while her EEG was flatlined. So then you have to say, well, how is that possible? What, what, like describing the room or describing conversations or something like that? Exactly. Exactly. And she was able to describe a tool that was used on her during the operation. And, and people were surprised that she was able to go into such detail about that. She also described the typical near-death experience of seeing the light and seeing seeing people from the other side. So when you see these accounts that occur all across the globe, all across time, 
you 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 have to give them some consideration, but in general, medicine ignores them. Right. I, I want to talk about like you've done some particular research and focus on autism and especially what you would call savant autistic people. So say something about that research and how you got involved in it. I was a neuroscientist before I went to medical school. And one of the reasons why I went to medical school was that I wanted to apply neuroscience to help people. And originally I was going to become a neurosurgeon because they were doing the most cutting edge work. They were recording um, from neurons and they were also stimulating neurons and seeing what patients would report. So I thought that that would be the way to go. When I was in medical school going through all my rotations, I fell in love with psychiatry. I saw that that's where I could really explore human consciousness. And the major probe that I use is my own mind, my own interview skills, in order to understand how is it that these people perceive the world. And one of the most common mistakes that we make in our society is that we, we act as though everybody is like us. One of the most common uh, you know, misconceptions is or assumptions that people make is that that person's behaving like that because, and then they think about what, what would make them behave like that, and that leads to a lot of errors. So you're saying that we have a kind of a a, a graph of this is normal, and and if somebody falls within that graph, we call it normal. So you're saying that that graph really we need to bust out of that graph. Yes. Yes, I'm saying that, and I also am saying that we need to recognize the individual differences that people have, that, that, that there are a lot of people that make judgment about one another without knowing much about them. And the autistic children are a prime example of people who are misunderstood because these children have poor control over their body and are frequently thought to be mentally retarded. So describe for our audience uh, what it might look like to be with an autistic child who's who's severely autistic? What might that look like? Well, first of all, it would look pretty chaotic to a lot of people because these children really are struggling with sensory overload. And they also have difficulty controlling their bodies. One of the reasons why they have difficulty controlling their bodies is because you need sensory input you need that feedback loop between sensory input and motor output to be functional. And in these children, it's not very functional. They have trouble initiating movements and they have trouble stopping movements when they start. So something's not hooked up there. Right. That's right. Their, their body movements are chaotic and, and fast, like waving arms or kicking their feet or banging their head or screaming. Or, all of this is taking place. It's, re- it's very difficult to be around a severely autistic child. That's correct. It's a real challenge for the parents, and a lot of people aren't aware of it because these children aren't taken out into public. The, the, the fathers of, and mothers of these children drive them places. They don't fly them. They, they don't take them to restaurants. And so there is, there's an epidemic of children who have this condition now and in America, but a lot of people aren't aware of it because they're, they're not child psychiatrists or pediatricians. When you say epidemic, what, what does that mean? The statistics on the increase in autism are staggering. I first started studying autism back in 1987, 
And at that time, I was told that it was such a rare condition that when I went over to London to study with Sir Michael Rudder, I was told I, I, when I come back to the U.S., I might only see one or two cases in my lifetime. When I saw the CDC's latest statistics that the incidence in America is 1 in 68, and in, in South Korea, the incidence is 1 in 38 children today being born with autism. I was shocked, and I went back to look at the statistics. And we don't have any really good statistics before 1970. What's important to remember is that autism didn't exist before it was discovered in 1938 by Leo Kanner at Johns Hopkins. Since its discovery, just in 1938, less than a century ago, it has increased over 350-fold because we know that in 19, around 1970, the incidence was about 1 in 25,000 children. By 1990, the incidence was 1 in 2,500. By 2010, the incidence was 1 in 100. One of the problems when people are looking at this is that they don't know about what the incidence of autism was prior to the current day. I'm here with Dr. Diane Hennessy Powell. She's a neuropsychiatrist, and she's the author of The ESP Enigma, The Scientific Case for Psychic Phenomena. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, dianehennessypowell.com, and she spells her name Hennessy, H-E-N-N-A-C-Y, Diane Hennessy. Powell.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Diane Hennessy Powell. She's a neuropsychiatrist and the author of the ESP Enigma, The Scientific Case for Psychic Phenomena. And Diane, we were just talking about autistic children. You've made a particular study of this, and you have come across some extraordinary findings in these autistic children that they you're finding that they're not developmentally challenged. I mean, they, they, have a, they, they have a great intellect, but they have trouble communicating. Can you describe some of the things that in children that you've come across? 
Well, let me um, explain first just how I became so interested in autism at this time, besides the fact that I'm concerned about the increased incidence of it. I was interested in consciousness, which is one of the major reasons why I went into neuroscience and went into medical school. And I became most interested in the areas that are considered fringe, the areas where people say, well, that's a mystery, or we don't know what to make of that, and it's just being peripheralized. So I thought, well, I'm going to study those. And what I saw was that most, most physicians, most scientists have no clue how much evidence there is already for phenomena like precognition or telepathy, but it's never met the standards that science would demand to accept it. So I thought about it as a neuropsychiatrist who's had the opportunity to work with people with all kinds of experiences of consciousness in this world. And I thought about who would be the most likely to demonstrate telepathy to the greatest extent, to the extent that science would demand, who might be able to do that? Because if it is... If it's innate in all of us, then I thought an autistic child might be the one who would express it because they are in a communication barrier with whoever they're, they care about most. So that the, the parents have a motivation to try to understand the child, that the child has a motivation to try to communicate with the, with the parent. And so I thought, well, a nonverbal autistic child. And, and why autistic? The reason for the autism is because of the fact that these children's brains are not like ours, where we have this conceptual expectation of how the world's going to be. They see things more as they are. And also, there's something called autistic savant syndrome. And these are, these are people who have these amazing abilities. They can play music. They can play um, you know, a piece by Mozart after hearing it once without having had any music lessons. The mathematical savant can solve complex equations, and yet they can't do simple math. And then there's these twins that Oliver Sacks talks about in one of his books who can just spit out six-digit primes in sequence back and forth like a volleyball. And when you ask them, well, how did you get this information? How do you know the primes? The primes just pop into their head. They're not, they're not, it's not that they've memorized them. It's not that they're trying to derive them. They wouldn't have a clue how to do an algorithm to get them. So it's like they're getting information in a pure sensory form. And I thought, so if someone, someone could do this, it would be them. They're also very perfectionistic and exacting and, and tend to have OCD. So... After putting that hypothesis out there, I was contacted by people who said that they have an autistic child who is telepathic. So are you saying that, like, the, these youngsters, they're not culturally um, habituated, so to speak? Like, like, you get a normal child that starts to grow up, and, and they, you know, we start imposing culture and a worldview on them right away. But these kids, they, there's, there's kind of less of a way to do that. So they're seeing the world kind of as pure in some way. Is, is that what you're saying? 
Um, well, I'm saying a couple of things. I mean, one of the things about these children is that if you test them, you'll find that they're not fooled by optical illusions. Their hearing is frequently um, so perfect that it, they have per, they're born with perfect pitch. So, so there's that piece of it, but it's also the fact that when I look at the autistic savant skills, they're all just so over the top. I mean, like Stephen Wiltshire is this famous artistic savant, and he has flown over cities in helicopters and just spent 45 minutes or so flying over London or Rome, and then he, repro- he can draw what he saw from the helicopter from memory um, and he's so exact, he'll have the, the, the right number of columns in Rome and all the right number of arches and everything. And so people were just blown away by that. But this is in somebody who's had brain damage. And so when you have these skills develop in somebody who's had brain damage, it, it, it's really an interesting phenomenon for a neuropsychiatrist. There's also something called acquired savant syndrome. And so there are these people who have a condition called frontotemporal Dementia, and what's happening is is that their their frontal lobes and their temporal lobes, which are the most recent um, evolutionarily, the most recent parts of the, um, our brain, those parts of their brain are are dying back because they have this dementing process. But what has happened is is that for for several of them, and this was studied by Bruce Miller at UCSF, several of them after they started to have this brain atrophy, all of a sudden they had these amazing artistic skills that they didn't have before. Jason Paget is a person who was in an accident, and, and afterwards, he started seeing fractals. He sees fractals directly. Isn't that interesting? Yes. And he draws them. And so, so this question of— And then the right brain, left brain also is, is not really talking in the way uh, what we say normal person does, that they— they're kind of separated. One doesn't overlap the other, or they're not connected. Is that right? Well, it's it's interesting. What what it is is that their their left and their right hemisphere have a different relationship to one another than is the typical um, relationship for most of us. Most of us, our left brain is what drives the train. Our our educational system um, is geared towards the left brain. Language is very left brain, particularly if you're in the West when you read from left to right and you also are reading words as opposed to using some kind of, uh, like the Chinese language, some kind of ideogram for sort of meaning. So um, getting back to... Um, you, you started to say... So the question is, what, what question should we be asking as we discover this? Can I finish? Uh, oh, I'm uh, sorry, I'm please. I didn't, didn't mean no, to No, because what I wanted to say, one of the things that's really fascinating in answer to your question is Kim Peek, who is one of the most famous savants, what, he actually didn't have autism. A lot of people think he had autism, but he, but he had savant syndrome, and he was someone who, by the time he had died at, in his late 50s, he had read over 12,000 books and had memorized them word for word, backwards and forwards. One of the things that was really remarkable about him is that he, he was born without the major connecting fibers between the left and the right hemisphere, and he was able to read one book with one eye and the other book with the other eye. And this was a person that uh, the Rain Man movie was was 
depicting. Is that right? It was based uh, upon yeah, him, uh, yes. Yeah, lo- loosely based upon him. Correct. Yes. Right. So what is the question that we should be asking? Well, there are a lot of questions we should be asking. I mean, one of the, one of the questions that um, I'm most interested in is what is our you know, innate human potential? And I think that these children are here and they can demonstrate that to us. Um, so that's that's one of the things that I'm asking, you know, what is going on with a child who, for example, whose parents tell me they are telepathic? And when I went to investigate one of these cases, I saw enough evidence to, to suggest that she is. And I, I want to go back and investigate it further. So what kind of evidence? When you set up that experiment, what what did it look like? How did you know she was telepathic rather than some other way of finding this information? Well, as a, as a doctor, one of the things that we do is we take a, we take a good story or a good clinical history, and we incorporate that into our hypothesis. And so what's important to know about this child is that she's, she's 10 years old, she's severely autistic, she is her ability to speak. She's been nonverbal. She's just recently started to be able to enunciate some letters and some numbers, but she still basically is dependent upon using a communication device to communicate with others. And she was working with a therapist in her home trying to, to, to teach her, you know, so that her schooling, that, that she wouldn't fall too far behind in her schooling. And, and so she has therapists in the home working with her. And one of her therapists was doing math with her, and she was able to solve more and more complex equations. And so the parents were thinking, oh, she's a mathematical savant, and isn't that wonderful? And then what happened is one day the therapist's calculator changed from giving her a display in normal numerical format to giving it an exponential format, and Haley typed out the answer in exponential format. This led the therapist to then ask her, what am I thinking? And Haley typed out word for word exactly what she was thinking. Then, after several months, without the parents telling any of the other therapists because they were, they were wondering what to do with this information, a second therapist who was working with her independently started to wonder, is this girl telepathic? Because she made the same spelling errors. So she wasn't... Uh, calculating the results. She was reading the mind of the therapist and repeating back the information she was telepathically getting rather than calculating. That's correct. And, and part of, when I did my experiments, part of how I know that she's not a mathematical savant is that the therapist mistook the symbol that's used for cube root to mean divide by three. And so when she told the operation to Haley to do with the numbers, she said to divide. And Haley gave the cube root instead of the, the, the answer you'd get if you divide by three because the therapist was there looking at the answer on a piece of paper that I had handed her. Interesting, interesting. And I, I know that you've uh, sent to me a, a link of a just an extraordinary video uh, of a, another young person, a young, well, now she's a teenager who is autistic and who is now able to 
communicate. And I, I want you to describe that a little bit in just one moment. First, I want to tell our listeners that I'm here with Dr. Diane Hennessy Powell, and she is a neuropsychiatrist, and she is the author of The ESP Enigma, The Scientific Case for Psychic Phenomena. And if you'd like to know more about her work, you can go to her website, dianehennessypowell.com. And Hennessy is spelled H-E-N-N-A-C-Y, Hennessy, dianehennessypowell.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Diane Hennessy-Powell. She's a neuropsychiatrist and the author of The ESP Enigma. Diane, I've mentioned briefly this video, which you will be describing in a minute. If listeners want to look it up, I suggest they search for Autistic Girl Expresses Unimaginable Intelligence. If they Google that, they'll find the video. So mention her briefly. She's a teenager, and her parents stuck with her and stuck with her for years and years and years trying to to get through to her, to help her improve in her skills of communication and, and so forth. And there was a huge breakthrough at some point, which was almost compared, I compared it to... Uh, Helen Keller and her work with uh, her teacher Sullivan, who suddenly the whole world opened up. And this is very similar to that. Can you speak about that, please? Well, this video is about a child who suffers from what's labeled severe autism. But in reality, Probably about 15% or so of children who are diagnosed with autism actually don't suffer from what was originally thought to be the autism. They don't have problems with language. Once people take the time to teach them how to control their bodies in order to communicate, which is quite a task. When people watch this, this video, they'll be able to see what a challenge it is. These These children have sensory overload, and they just get bombarded all of the time, and they get treated as though they're practically non-existent. So what, what's happened is, is that there have been speech and language therapists who've been working with these children who have discovered that, no, they don't have a language disorder. It's purely a sensory motor problem. And if you give them the tools of learning to communicate then what you find out is that they can actually start to behave more and more normally. One of the things that the speech-language therapist that I met with uh, said to me, which I thought was quite um, telling, she said, just think about it. Imagine being in a body in which you are perfectly sensitive, highly intelligent human being, but everyone who sees you 
thinks that you're mentally retarded and don't care about them because you can't control your eyes or your your body to demonstrate it in the way that other people do. And then... Would you be kicking and screaming? <laughs> this, this therapist, she said, I'd bite people too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So she learned to use a keyboard on a computer, and she was perfectly cogent and able to speak about her internal uh, experience and, and her relationship and ask for what she needed then. Yes, yes. And what she's doing now is she and her, she's a twin, she and her twin, who doesn't have autism, are trying to help spread the word because this this, this is like a miracle, what has happened here, but it's a miracle that could happen in other households where people have these children. But it's very labor-intensive. Yes. But the video will show how rewarding it can be. Yes. Yes. I, I cried when I saw it, and in, in especially hearing what the father said about being able to now be in contact with his daughter. Let's talk about um, remote viewing. What is it, and what kind of research is being done with remote viewing Well, remote viewing is really the same thing as clairvoyance. I mean, they're both this ability to see something that's far away. And remote viewing is a term that gives it more of a scientific sound. And and there was a lot of research that was um, done by Russell Targ and Hal Putoff at SRI. Um, Most of that was done in the 70s and 80s, and a lot of it was classified. Um, A lot of it's still probably classified. But they were, during the Cold War, trying to see if they could remotely view these sites of interest where the Russians were building um, various types of weapons. And when you look at the pictures of the drawings that a person who's sitting there who's supposed to be trying to visualize something based on its uh, physical coordinates, you know, in the or they're, they're told an address, and they're trying to, and this is all before we had the internet and Google Maps, and what they're doing basically is they're going and they're, they're actually as though they Google mapped it and they're drawing yes. what they can. And, and some, of the, 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 some of the drawings are just so remarkably similar to what was being viewed. Like one of the most famous ones is the um, Livermore uh, wind fill, uh, you know, the wind uh, mills that are there for energy. So in also in in the seventies there was a lot of work done and maybe it continues where people were asked to do healings of different people and they they only had the name of the person and that's all they had and they went into some sort of meditative state I would assume and then they would remotely see into the body, like a medical intuitive, I think. Carolyn Mace is is one that we've had on New Dimensions who has talked about this. So they, they see within the body and then they do a healing on, on that person or, or they at least report, here's what I'm seeing and here's for a doctor or a medical professional. So what do you have to say about that? Well, I think one of the things that's confusing is the using the term remote, because in order to understand these phenomena, 
I think you have to have an understanding of how is this possible in this physical world? Otherwise, it sounds very woo-woo to people. And physicists, cosmologists, mathematicians, many different disciplines are coming to the conclusion that we live in a holographic universe. You see in nature how so many plants, things like the pine cone, are designed in a way that's a fractal design. At the quantum level, it looks like it's fractal pattern. You know, at the at, when we look at galaxies, that's also a fractal pattern. So there's and, a micro and a macro, and they're matching. Yes, and this is, people have been wanting to unify physics, and and it's looking like the holographic um, theory is maybe what really does unify it. It's been around for a while, and there are different versions of it, and people actively working on that. Um, some people that I'm uh, part of the um, think tank with working on that. So. The thing is, is that in this holographic universe, if you think about what a hologram is, if you were to create a three-dimensional image embedded in, say, plastic or glass that um, you, you created with lasers, and it's an image that you can, you know, just like any other object, you walk all around, it's, it's three-dimensional. If you were to take that and you were to shatter it or smash it with a hammer, it would break into thousands of shards. And each one of those would have a complete image of the whole. And when this was discovered, that the information was not just the way that we think of information, but actually every single part contains the information of the whole. That's what we mean by hologram. So I think that we as a human species have within us a holographic representation of the universe, that that's part of what we do is we're, everything, if you think about it, is happening in our brain in the sense that we have sensory input from our eyes, from our ears, you know, so we touch things. And so all of that is going on in our brain. But what our brain does is it takes all of the sensories coming in through different channels. And then there's an area called the angular gyrus where it all gets processed and integrated and then put back together again. So color is separated from size. Everything's separated from one another. It's all put back together again. And then we are able to interact with this world that's out there in a way that's very precise and that's that's really only possible in a holo, you know in a holographic world and within our that hologram we have information about everything else so we're part of that so if you think about what it means to have all information available everywhere then it's no longer really so remote what remote what you're doing is as a remote healer is that you're, or as a remote viewer, is that I believe you're going to your, some place in that hologram, that some people have learned how to navigate this hologram so that they're navigating through our own consciousness representation of space-time. And some people are able to navigate in a way where they can see things in the future. Um, and there are other people who can navigate where they can see things that are you know remote in terms of physical space. But all of that information about everything is inside of us. When we connect with another person, 
I think that what it does is it creates almost like a, a bookmark for that part of our hologram. And so if the, the, every time we connect with them, um, especially if it's a really strong emotional bond, then then that part of the hologram is really getting reinforced such that if something happens to that person that we're connected with, we would be more aware of it perhaps. And, and that could be one way of thinking of telepathy. Well, that reminds me of the work that's done with twins, that they find that there are certain, there's because of their close connection and maybe their DNA is so closely connected that they can know things about each other even when they're in distance apart. Yes. I mean, and, and what's also interesting, besides the telepathy, are the identical twins who were separated at birth and raised apart. There has been a large study of them, and what's fascinating is how many of them engaged in the same exact things at the same time. It, it, the odds of this are staggering. I mean, the, the Jim twins are the most famous, and these are twins who were both named Jim by their adopted parents, which is not that surprising, but they both married women with the same names, divorced those women, married other women with the same name. They, they named their children the same name. They, they even went to vacation in the same place, you know, dr liked to drive the same kind of car. And what was really remarkable is they each, before they met, had this desire all of a sudden to build a circular white structure around a tree. The, 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 and so it makes you wonder, these, these people who were twins raised apart, what's going on? They, and they have totally different families. Now, it, and it can't be all genetics because the human genome is really not that large. It's, we only have 20-some thousand genes. And then if you say, well, it's epigenetics, which is the science of how do we regulate genes. It's about all the switches that are in, in, in the, you know, now we know the chromosome, what we used to call junk DNA is not junk DNA. Well, it's not just about those switches because actually if you look at the chromosomes of identical twins, even the ones raised in the same family, you will see that they, the methylation and the other processes that are what we call epigenetics, you'll see that, they, 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 that their chromosomes start looking less and less alike over time. So I'm going to ask you in just one moment what, what, what they're discovering is the connection. I'm here with Diane Hennessy-Powell. She is a neuropsychiatrist and the author of The ESP Enigma. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Dr. Diane Hennessy Powell, and she's a neuropsychiatrist and the author of the ESP Enigma, the scientific case for psychic phenomena. And we were just talking about twins and and how they are connected. So when you were describing this case, particular case of these twins who were separated at birth, but had experienced the same thing at the same time, what do you, what does research show that, that, what is, what is that? Well, it's, it's one of those things where a lot of people are thinking that it's, it's something like epigenetics. They don't really, they don't really know what to make of it. My thought is, if you if we get back to once again this this theory that we we are living in a holographic universe, if you think about it, two twins that are in the same womb together, not only do they have identical DNA if they're identical twins, but they also are there in the same womb together. And I've seen some video taken of twins in utero, and what they've shown is that they're relating to one another. You actually see them facing one another, and so they're aware of each other as you know, as conscious beings, even in the womb. And what I think happens is, is when they're separated from one another, I think that they probably, they, they have their holographic representation is synchronized. And so I think that it's almost like they, when they get separated, like they're living these lives that have a lot of parallels because they're, they're connected to each other because of all of these ways in which their holographic representation of the universe is... Um, you know, in contact, if that makes sense. If, if, for example, as I said earlier, like the bond that you have, if you, if you, if you have a bond with the twin that you're with, and then you're going to see the telepathy. So these twins don't report telepathy because they didn't grow up with one another. Right. But what's interesting is what they're doing is they're just going out and engaging in similar behaviors. There's another set of twins in which events happen at the same. You know, you have uh, you have one twin who falls and breaks her leg on the same day that her other twin does, and they don't even know each other. Right. And so there's some kind of unseen mechanism between the two of them. I would think, Diane, this just reminds me of a quote by Yogi Berra, and he was a, a, a baseball Hall of Famer and a, kind of a philosopher. Uh, and uh, so when we're talking about things like this, and we don't have an explanation, we, it's not laid out in the scientific method. Uh, Yogi said something about what we see is what we believe. And so we have to, so the belief comes before the scene. If we believe something, then we see it, is kind of the quote. You, to believe something is to see it. We have to expand our belief system now to be able to start to see connections of why this occurs, it seems to me. Yes, well, one of the things that's been interesting is that I've had many people tell me they never experienced any psychic phenomena. After reading my book, they started to, and I think it's precisely because they read the book, they read the evidence, it made sense, and all of a sudden, they, you start to notice things. That's interesting. So it starts to expand our awareness of the possibility before before reading the book then and with which actually gives lots of examples of research that has been done 
and reported and that that you're not going to read in the normal news or see on TV news, but it's there if you start to search around for it. And therefore, you know, it helps to expand our awareness. Diane, I'd love to talk about time. One of the chapters in your book you devote to time and the you talk about present time and future time and and real time and imaginary time and so let's talk about time what what is time is it is it a a central projection from here to there like an arrow or is it something else well time is really mainly a human concept because we experience life um as a sequence of events and we um, we see change, and so so that's really the basis for for time as a human being. But what's interesting is when you have these people who experience events, and it's not always in sequence, because I, there are people who have precognitive events who will actually sort of it's almost like they visited their future, and and they then experience it later. And, and the fact that they were able to experience it earlier sometimes actually is very helpful for them. It's, it's, there are people who have um, prevented accidents as a result. There's a book by PMH Atwater called Future Memory, and she talks about this phenomenon in which she will have overlay of something in the future and there are several people who've had this, an overlay of something happening in the future happened now. And then when that moment in the future arises, she knows exactly what everybody's going to say. I mean, it's, 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 it's like deja vu, deja vu to on steroids. Right. We had something that happened in New Dimensions once. Many years ago, uh, Dorothy Fadiman was going to be on the program talking about listening to her inner voice. And when she left Menlo Park to come up to San Francisco... She left the book that she meant to bring by her bedside. It was um, Coleman Barks' translation of Rumi called An Open Secret. And she was already on the freeway, and she thought, oh, I need to go back and get the book. And then her inner voice said, oh, don't worry about it. It'll all work out. So she didn't go back and get the book. In the meantime, Michael and I were coming down from from up north and, and coming to the studio. And we stopped by the office, which we n- never, ever did before an interview. We would just drive straight to the studio. But we stopped by the office. We picked up a package, and it was addressed to Dorothy Fadiman. I thought, oh, isn't that interesting? She's going to be, we're going to see her in just a few minutes. So we took the book or we took the package to her and gave it to her just before the program started. And of course, she opens it up and it is a copy of Open Secrets sent to her through us from Coleman Barks mm. and signed to her. So there is that that extraordinary event that does that seems to have no explanation. Right. And, and, and so I think that a lot of these things are showing us that we are really far more interconnected with one another and with everything. It's, not, it's just not with one another, but with everything than, than people realize. And the, what you said about belief, it's, it's so true. I, um, I think it's like the four-minute mile. I mean, that was considered the, the barrier to, to human ability. And then as soon as Sir Roger Bannister 
broke that, then then several other people were able to do it afterwards and, and even exceed his record by 17 seconds. How do you think our culture could change if we allowed more of this this information in and just let it let it sink in and and to be amazed and to not know but just to say wow this is happening and maybe we just haven't discovered why yet but it's a real thing how how would that change our culture do you think i think that accepting these phenomena as real would have a profound impact on our culture because People, we really live in a world in which there's far more possibilities, and a lot of people are feeling a sense of lack. There also needs to be science in which science is informed by intuition. And one of the problems with science today is that the intuition, a lot of the intuition has been taken out of it. So much of science has been sterilized. And what is the most important thing for us to understand here on Earth? We need to understand our fellow human beings and how to inhabit this planet sustainably and in harmony. And I think that anything that increases our understanding of what it is to be human anything that opens the doors for more informed communication. So if somebody develops their telepathy, it makes it less likely that they're going to misunderstand someone because their conversations aren't just listening to the tone of your voice, the facial expression, and the words you say. It's also being informed by an insight into you that is much deeper than that. And acknowledging that, I know that uh, you would like to continue with this research and be able to, uh, you have a project. What, what's the name of the project that you're working on? The name of my project is the Telepathy Project. And I started a crowdfunding campaign on Indiegogo in order to support it. And the reason why I went to crowdfunding is that this kind of research is not funded by academia. In fact, it's relegated into pseudoscience. However, I think that we are really on the precipice of that changing. And so in this project, what I want to do is I want to spend time with these children. I have several children who have been reported to be telepathic, and they're around the world. I want to go spend time with them, document it, and create a film that is of highest scientific integrity. And so I don't want money from television stations or you know, people who have their own um, agenda. agenda. Well, uh, so people can find out more about that project from your website. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Yes. So the website is dianehennessypowell.com, and Hennessy is spelled H-E-N-N-A-C-Y, Diane HennessyPowell.com. So that's uh, uh, Dr. Powell's website, and she is the author of the ESP Enigma, The Scientific Case for Psychic Phenomena. And if you, you can also get to her website through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. 
This is program number 3528. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.